Hello and welcome to another episode of Adventures in .NET. I'm John Clabo, your host, and with me today is your co-host, Wai Lu. How you doing, Wai? Yeah, I'm pretty good. How you doing? Good. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just launched my book, Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there, the Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. What's the weather like down there in the Southern Hemisphere? Um, well, it's, it was getting warm um, for a little while, but um, it's kind of gone a bit windy-ish lately, but, um, but right today it seems to be okay. It's, it's Saturday morning here right now, but, um, so I'm not sure what today is going to be, but um, it's actually my, me and my wife's anniversary today, so we'll be... Um, oh, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. How many years? Oh, gosh. Um, oh, you got to think about it. Uh-oh. <laughs> I know she's not listening, right? <laughs> Maybe I show her this one, this particular episode, but no. <laughs> All right. So yeah, the weather's been kind of windy around where I am, and it's it was you know really really cold a couple of weeks ago, and it's about normal right now. But last week I was in Florida, and it kind of got spoiled because down there it was you know almost eighty degrees. It was quite humid, so that was a little different from where I'm at here. I was down there for uh, Microsoft Ignite, you know, one of the big conferences for uh, Microsoft Technologies. Just had a great time. Nice, yeah. I've always wanted to go to go to that. So, um, what was your experience like? Were there a lot of people there? Yeah, yeah. It was it was just huge. I don't. If anybody is familiar with the Orlando Conference Center, it's just I don't know, probably six to ten football fields in size at least. You know, one day I did twenty five thousand steps, going back and forth, back and forth. So my feet were pretty uh, pretty tired after the end of the week. But uh, twenty eight thousand attendees plus vendors and staff and things like that. So there was well over 30,000 people there total. So it was crazy. Most of it is kind of geared towards DevOps people, server side, infrastructure, things along that. But they're really trying to expand on the the developer uh, presence in Ignite. Of course, the the bigger developer conference is uh, Microsoft Build, and that's in May in Seattle. And I'll probably end up going to that too. But... uh, Ignite is really trying to get more developer stuff. I was able to meet a number of Microsoft people. One was Jonathan Carter. He's in charge of uh, Visual Studio Online, which is one that they just announced that's in preview. That's really cool. He also talked about IntelliCode and also LiveShare, the things they're doing there for LiveShare between VS Code and Visual Studio for you know sharing uh, development environments and being a little kind of like pair program, but with up to 30 people. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. So like, so what you can kind of remote, it will be like a remote desktop of your Visual Studio code, like Windows on that? Or? Right. It's, it's almost like, you know, having a, a second person there that can use your development environment, uh, be it VS Code or Visual Studio, like they're at your machine, but they're on their machine. And they don't even need any of the libraries or... APIs or anything like that that you have in your machine to be running it. So it's it's kind of a virtualization, but kind of on steroids. It's really you know, souped up to be the ability to multi-edit across up to 30 people in one developer environment. And it even allows you to, to debug things remotely. Oh, so wow. it, it's really cool. So uh, anybody's um, 
hasn't heard about live share, check it out. If you want to be able to do, uh, you know, have somebody help you out with your code or anything like that. I thought a good example of the need for it might be in like tech interviews. So companies might be able to set up an environment that they want to have somebody developing something in and they can just kind of share that out to the developer and then do a remote uh, tech interview. Yeah. So I haven't actually played around with Visual Studio Online, but when I first heard about it, I was just, just very excited. You know, like um, I've been looking at um, kind of like things that Microsoft had done recently, you know, purchasing GitHub and then pushing Visual Studio Code and, you know, obviously Azure and stuff. Like, do you think this whole um, collaborative um, online development thing is, is something that they're really trying to push um, and that would be something that we'll be have something to look forward to in the future to have a um, more collaboration in the, in the dev space like this? Yeah, I think so. It really came across that way that they really want to make it as easy as possible for people to collaboratively work on projects, either through LiveShare or through VS Online. VS Online was really cool because, you know, being able to, you know, do your full development stack, everything right in a browser, and then have that browser, you know, you can use it from anywhere. So I was thinking like, you know, sometimes I want to have everything completely matched up from work to at home when I develop things. Mm -hmm. So if I just moved all my projects into where they could be accessible through VS online, everything would be working there. Now, one thing about uh, VS online right now is in the preview, it's only using the visual studio code editor. Yeah. Yeah. So it's basically just like using visual studio code to develop a a .NET project. And then, um, so that's in the public preview but they do have a private preview of the Visual Studio editor. Yeah. So if you if you prefer the Visual Studio editor, then you can go out there and look for the private preview link for VS Online, and that'll give you into that. So that's probably a little less stable because it's you know it's private preview, so it's not quite ready to go. From my understanding, the VS Online with the Visual Studio Code editor, that's pretty close. So they're asking as many people to go out there and and try that. Now there is charges. It's because it's an online system. There are charges for the minutes that you're using it, just like any other Azure service. But it is pretty affordable. I think we're working out that if you used it eight hours a day, five days a week, you might be like 40 bucks a month or maybe less than that. I think uh, that increases the productivity of a developer. It'll be peanuts for any company, I think. Um, on, on that note about how it's not ready on Visual Studio, but it is ready on Visual Studio Code, that's, that's actually quite interesting. I think, is, it, is that because basically it's Visual Studio Code is created using is it Electron or something like that? So it, it is right. actually already web-based and what stuff. You can actually put it on a browser and that. So it's probably pretty easy for them to actually do that, but they've got to do a lot of rewriting for Visual Studio, like the standard edition. Would, would, that, would, you, would that be true, you think? Or? Yeah, I think that's why, yeah. Because, um, you know, with Electron, everything was already kind of HTML and JavaScript-based, so it was easy for them to, to move that over to run in the browser. And then they're going to have to come up with a whole new structure for the Visual Studio Editor. Yeah. This kind of thing is really, really important um, in the future, I guess, because I think more and more developers these days are working remotely. And I guess Microsoft is really trying to support that, um, you know, sp- you know, on the Office 365 suite, they've got you know, teams and all that stuff to try to get you to collaborate more, like, like better um, online. And I guess this is just kind of a push in, the, in, in that direction as well. So, 
Yeah. So VS Online, you know, had full integration with GitHub. So you can put your projects out there in GitHub and, you know, pull it down or edit it right in inside the VS Online editor, do builds, test, debug, so on and so forth. So I'm looking forward to, to uh, kind of putting that through its paces. I haven't uh, logged in and made an account for it yet, but uh, it's really interesting to me. Do, do they have a free trial or anything? Or? Um, yeah, in the preview, anybody can sign up for it. I don't know if it's if it's going to go co- across and charge you know, Azure credits right now. That that we something I need to look into. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure about that. I did have a look at the specs at that. That I think it's essentially setting like a VM up in 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 Azure, and it's like the options are like eight gigs of RAM or sixteen gigs of RAM, and you know that would be quite expensive for someone who's just wanting to try it out. I guess so. Right. Um, so what else was there um, at Ignite that you were? Um, so a lot of the announcements they they had were about Azure things. Uh, they were talking about Azure hardware devices. Uh, one thing was called you know using Azure Stack, which is kind of lo- of a local version of of Azure that you can have at your, at your own data center. So if you want to have something on prem with Azure, you can get a device called Azure Stack. And then they showed how they can also integrate Azure Stack devices into the global Azure ecosystem. And that would be like what they called Azure Arc. And according to the you know Azure Arc website, um, let's see, what do they, they call it? Bring Azure services and management to any infrastructure. Mm. So, and it's Azure Arc in preview. And uh, yeah, really cool where you can just, they showed how they had this device on stage and they added it to the nodes that they had in Azure and it just became one of the other, you know, elements that, that they could have as a node that could fail over to or be a primary source, so on and so forth. Mm. I think that's actually really important in, um, for them in the government space as well, because I know like working in the government, like the Australian government, um, there's a big question of what we can actually put on the cloud in terms of security and privacy and, you know, what kind of security posture that um, the department has. So, so having, having options where you can actually deploy the Azure stack on premise, or for at least for the parts that you that you're not, you know, you're not confident about um, putting on online, gives it or on the cloud, provides a lot of options, I think. So so the difference between Azure Stack and Azure Arc, can you explain a little bit more about that? Um, From my understanding, it was like, you know, Azure Stack is is the actual devices that you put on premise. So that's like you can buy a certified machine that's developed and designed for using Azure on it, and it would run all the Azure services, everything on that machine in your on-premises data center. And then Azure Arc is being able to add that as a center in your in the Azure setup. So yeah. if you wanted to have like something local on-prem, but then you can also have it mirrored out to, you know, West Coast US or Europe or Australia, any of the nodes that are out there, it can be part of that system. Yeah, sure. Okay. So it's kind of like the, the software that ties all the, the integration of the hardware together, I guess. Um, yeah, that was my initial understanding of it. I haven't gone into it in details yet because I'm not on, on the DevOps side. I'm just the de- developer. So it was interesting, but uh, it was uh, not really in my wheelhouse. So I, I didn't go that deep on it yet. Yeah, okay. Sure. But, uh, yeah, I can put the link to um, the information about it in the show notes. So if anybody wants to, to add your arc and all the different features of it, they can check it out. Sure. So 
what was your best thing about Ignite? I guess what was the best conference you went to? What was the the best food lunch? <laughs> <laughs> it was cool. They they included a lot of food um, with the conference registration. So breakfast was included, lunch was included, and unlimited soft drinks and orange juice and apple juice. It was just all around the conference. And then one night on Thursday night, they actually rented out Universal Studios. Whoa. So it was a private party for Universal Studios in Florida, which was really, really cool. It was still with all the attendees and everything. It was still fairly packed. And one of the rides that I went on to uh, was a brand new Harry Potter ride called Hagrid. And it was still a 90 minute wait to get through that ride. Really? Okay. Yeah. So 90 minutes to get through that. And then there was a 30 minute wait for another ride and that was pretty oh. much all the time we all the time we had between you know walking around and checking things out and eating yeah. and getting a couple of rides so it was just thursday night yeah i think the strangest thing about that i mean i can imagine is that you know when you go to a theme park you expect to have tons of kids and stuff screaming and things like that but i imagine everyone there would be like an adult right um, because yeah like, yeah so yeah, it was really kind of freaked me out because I went there and I thought all they were going to do was get in, get in for free, and then we'd have to have to pay for food and drinks or things like that. But nope, they was uh, little carts all around the uh, the park with free food, free beer, free soft drinks, free popcorn. Um, I tried a thing called butter beer. Um, yeah. So anybody that knows Harry Potter is familiar with a thing called butter beer, and to me it kind of tasted like a cross between a root beer float and buttered popcorn. Is it like alcoholic or is it? Um, I, I don't think it was alcoholic. I was non-alcoholic, even though they call it butter beer. But that's just what they call it in, in Harry Potter world. Oh, okay. So yeah. I'm sure all the kids want to have it too. So it's probably non, non-alcoholic. non So, but it was, it was really, really good. Oh, okay. So do you can, um, like the best thing I ignite was it, was it more about networking? Was it more about learning, like, you know, going to the conferences and stuff? Like what, what did you get most out of it? You think? For me, I really liked meeting some of the important Microsoft people. So like I met and talked with Scott Hunter, who is the VP of, of .NET and Azure development team. And then I also mentioned that I talked with uh, Jonathan and Carter. So he's one of the project managers there, but also, uh, met up with uh, Richard Campbell, who's the .NET Rocks host and uh, run as radio. So he kind of is the one that lined me up with um, people to talk to. And coming out um, in the next couple of weeks, actually, he's probably going to be coming up before this episode airs, will be my talks with uh, Jonathan Carter and Scott Hunter. So right. I'll look for those because we, we, with Scott Hunter, I talked a lot about .NET 3.0 .NET 3.1 and the upcoming .NET 5. Yeah, him and I talked for an hour and we could have went for another hour or, or more easily. Really? Oh, so, yeah. Uh, we did a lot of talk on Blazor there. So I, yeah, I met up and went through a lot of sessions um, with Daniel Roth, who was the project manager for, for Blazor. So I wanted to learn a lot more about that and talked about it with uh, Scott Hunter. So Scott Hunter really wanted to emphasize about server-side Blazor. So oh, yeah. he wanted to let people know that that is, you know, fully baked and ready to be used in production environments. And they showed some numbers where even on a small Azure machine, it can handle about 5,000 concurrent clients. And on a larger um, Azure machine, it could handle up to about 20,000 concurrent clients. Oh, wow. Okay. 
So, yeah, um, so large and small, like are we a small? Are we talking like a gig of RAM? Like, what's the? Do we do we have a system for that? Or? Yeah, they they showed one of the you know the different VMs that you can pick to run your things from, and they just showed. Yeah, I don't remember the specs specifically, but they just showed. You know, this one is kind of a small amount of RAM, small you know small processor, and yep. it, it did five thousand. And then the larger ones, they just said you know twenty thousand or more. And what I learned about server-side Blazor is the way that it handles the, the differences between the DOM changes. So what it does is it actually keeps in memory a copy of the latest page that it sent out to the browser. Yeah. So it knows the full HTML that it sent out to the browser. Yeah. And then when any events come back, it re-renders the page, does a diff between the two pages, and then sends only that difference back out to the browser. Yeah, sure they're doing some tricky things on the browser side to know which section that it gets replaced. They actually have, if you view source on Blazor server-side page, you see a lot of empty comments. And they're attaching metadata to those empty comments to figure out what parts of the page to swap out through that SignalR connection when it comes back out and re-renders the page. So is it kind of like a modern version of of Ajax kind of thing, you think? Um yeah, it's a modern version, I'd say, of the update panel. But with the update panel, you had to specify this is the section of the page that you want to, you know, swap out when this event handles gets handled. And with Blazor server side, you don't tell it what section of the page to swap out. It's using its own little diff algorithm to figure out what changed and how to swap that out on the client. Okay. So yeah. it's a lot more intelligent. And it can really get the the payload size down to just a matter of bytes, depending on how much changes on the page. Oh, okay, yeah, cool. And it's just, and it's, I'm imagine it's doing this all through WebSockets. Yeah, WebSockets and SignalR, yeah, for server side. And yeah, then I also learned uh, some things about you know server side Blazor that it doesn't do any state management. So, so state management for Blazor server side is not built into the box. So you kind of have to, to figure out how to do that on your own. So if you want, uh, you know, state to be carried um, through postbacks, uh, no postbacks, sorry, through events from page to page, you kind of have to save that either in local storage or somewhere in the server to retain state. So do you mean the the, the client side um, state manager? You, you were saying that before that um, Blazor remembers all the HTML that's currently on the... Right, it remembers the HTML, but it it has no state in that other than this is the HTML that I rendered the last time I sent a page to the browser. Okay. So, so any variables or anything like that that's uh, associated with the page, yeah. it doesn't remember them. Okay, sure. So I guess there's no opinion. I guess there's a way to do it, but there's no opinionated way in Blazor to, to do it. Right. Have you ever felt like JavaScript is just everywhere? Well, we have. We actually had a conversation on JavaScript Jabber about what you can build with JavaScript. We've also talked about what JavaScript is and how we're inspired by the language. If you're interested in JavaScript or are doing web development, then you definitely need to check out JavaScript Jabber. You can find it at javascriptjabber.com. So at the show, one of the things I was really interested in learning was more about Blazor and the inner workings of Blazor. So with server-side Blazor, you know, the way it works is there's a SignalR connection between the server and the browser. And on the first render, it sends out an HTML DOM representation of whatever it needs to render. 
and then it sets up a SignalR connection back to the server. And then any events that are happening on the, on the client are sent back to the server. The server then re-renders the page and does a diff between those two copies that it has. So it keeps one copy in memory at all times, re-renders the page, does a diff, and then sends only those diff elements back out to the browser. And it does it real smart. So it's not like the old update panel where you had to specify what section of the page that you want to have replaced and swapped out by Ajax. This one's using some metadata that it attaches to empty comment tags in the browser. And it uses that to figure out what section of the page to swap out. And so if only a small section needs to be swapped out, it's only a matter of bytes that's going to be sent back and forth over the server. It's really cool the way it does that. So because it's running everything on the server, do we have any statistics about um, how many concurrent users you might be able to run at any one time? Well, they, they showed a slide, and I don't remember the actual type of machines that they had, but they had one was a small Azure machine and another one was a large Azure machine. And on the small Azure machine, they said it could handle 5,000 concurrent clients. So, and then on the larger Azure machine, it said it could handle 20,000 concurrent clients. So, you know, with a farm of Azure machines, you could scale that up to, you know, easily hundreds of thousands concurrently at the same time through server-side Blazor. Yeah, sure. Oh, that's amazing, actually. So... Because it's using uh, that copy of the last rendered page in memory, you got to make sure that all the clients become sticky. So you don't want them swapping between different instances of, of servers on, on the server side. So otherwise, it's just going to know, okay, this is somebody new and not somebody that was continuing on if it happens to slip over. So make sure that you have all your sessions set sticky for anybody that's using server-side Blazor. Yeah, okay. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, then the other thing about server-side is it doesn't do any um, state management. So anything you want to do um, to retain state between pages, you kind of have to handle that yourself. It's nothing that's that's built into the, the Blazor ecosystem the way it comes. Yeah, sure. So we, at the moment, we've only got some server-side, um, but you, but when are we looking at um, getting WebAssembly, the, the WebAssembly version of us? I think the WebAssembly version is probably going to come out probably in the May or June time time frame. I think what they said that they were shooting for May, but that's always you know, subject to change because that's still mm. a number of months out. So I saw a Twitter post by Steve Sanderson, uh, one of the you know Blazor developers, that said that they were uh, really working on it really hard to try to to meet that deadline, but it's um, pretty tricky. Yeah, I think um, so. Right now. If you can, if you can only use server side, um, what advantage you reckon it would offer compared to just using a like a spa framework like Angular? I think anybody that wants to go into Blazor should be somebody that's just familiar with writing C sharp mm. and isn't really that interested in in learning JavaScript or TypeScript or all the ins and outs of some other, you know, client side you know, library framework. So if you prefer C sharp and you want to write C sharp everywhere. I think Blazor is a good option. It's kind of like, you know, Xamarin, you know, you could go out there and you can learn how to write code for Apple and Android devices directly, or you can stay writing writing C-sharp using Xamarin. So that's the same thing with Blazor. So it's really just targeting, uh, I guess, guess traditional um, 
back-end developers who might want to um, move towards the front-end development, I guess. Right. So yeah, they're, they're coming out right now. They have a Blazor server side is out there live. It's part of uh, .NET Core 3.0. And mm. then uh, the WebAssembly client-side version is still in preview. They really emphasize to me that the server side is, is fully baked, ready to go. So yeah, if, you, if anybody wants to do that, go ahead and do it. Just remember that you gotta, you got to handle your own state. And then one of the other gotchas that I figured out while I was there was that if you make any changes to the server-side code while there are connected clients, those clients will have to reconnect and refresh their page. So you could end up losing some of the state that somebody has if you're running server-side Blazor. Sure. We were saying that um, I think .NET 3.1 is coming out soon, is it? Um, is that is that the big emphasis on, on Blazor or are there any other changes? Do you know? Or? Yeah, it's going to be quite a few changes to things more than Blazor. I went to the Blazor sessions, so the only thing I really learned that's changed between 3.0 and 3.1 for Blazor is that you will now be able to use partial classes. Oh, so, yeah, what are those? So it's, it's your code behind right now. So right now, to get you have to pretty much put your HTML and your code in the same file. There is a workaround to get it separated out into different files, but it's really not, you know, that straightforward. But mm. with 3.1, you'll be able to have, you know, tag something as a partial class, and then at compile time, it will combine all the partials into the final class to work with. Yeah, sure, sure. So similar to that old web forms type pattern, is it? Right. Right. So you'll have your ASPX file. Of course, it's going to be a Razor file in Blazor. And then you'll have, I think, probably something like a Razor.cs file that it will combine as a partial class for Blazor. Oh, yeah. Cool. That sounds interesting. So that'll make that a lot easier. I like to keep my code separated just because that's the way I'm used to being a a longtime web forms developer. But there are some people that, that don't mind throwing some of the code that they're working with in the same file as the HTML. And the way they said it is, as long as it's view-related code, they don't see any problem with putting that code in the same file as the main Razor file. But business logic should be separated out. And so that should be either in, in another uh, code library or you can separate it out into the code behind file version yeah. for Blazor. I'm basically yeah, of that opinion as well. Um, I think mainly the business logic thing, it's not an aesthetic thing, it's mainly just so then you can, you know, unit test it. It would be pretty, I imagine it would be hard to unit test it if it was um, inside a kind of a razor, razor file, so. Right, you can still set your breakpoints wherever it's at, but it's just a matter of your preference. Do you like to have your HTML intermingled with your your code and your logic? So people that are used to React or something like that, they typically have no problem with, intermingling HTML and code. Mm. But uh, if you're web forms or even some MVC stuff, people prefer to have the business logic code separated out from the HTML. Sure, sure. But I mean, when you're saying that, um, you know, you have to put everything inside your the Razor file, you could still just call a class that would call the the code, like a, like a library code, right? Yeah, you could do that. So you could still kind of break it up, yeah, so... But yeah, it's good to have that that the ability to have that code behind file in the future. So, um, um, was there anything else that um that was interesting at Ignite? Um, what what do you think? Um, based on your experience, um, what do you think is the the future direction of um where Microsoft or or where Azure is heading? You think? 
I think they're really trying to put that emphasis on collaboration with that Visual Studio Online, Live Share, everything along those lines with GitHub. It's really, they're really trying to emphasize in collaboration between people. Yeah, sure. And then in uh, November next year, which will be around, again, around Ignite time, they should be releasing uh, .NET 5. So I called it the, the grand convergence. So you've, you've got, you know, ASP, all the different platforms combining into one framework. Yeah. And they'll, they'll be losing the, the, the core brand name, isn't it? Right. There'll be no more core. According to Scott Hunter, there still will be a need for .NET standard. And that yep. will be for anybody that actually wants to do some interoperations between core and full framework type things. Okay. So you'll still want to know which, which parts of the API will work, work on both systems, full framework and in .NET 5. Mm. Yeah, it's very interesting, isn't it, um, how, how, how it's kind of finally happening. I wonder what would be any implications for people that are still on the, the old um, .NET 4. For X framework, um, I guess any indications that they just won't migrate to five, I guess. But right, the application that I work on, it's all full framework right now, mm. and I want to start migrating to core, but uh, I'm on web form, so it's going to be a tough, tough transfer between the two. So mm. I might be able to use Blazor for a lot of it, but I'm probably going to have to break it into two different applications because Blazor is going to be core only. And then there are ways where you can share authentication between a full framework app and a core app. Okay. So, so what I will probably do is have one of the folders inside of my full framework app will be set up as a .NET core app so that as I start rewriting my pages, I can point them to inside of core and then not have to have them re-authenticate. Okay. So just to clarify, um, so Webforms is not going to be supported in .NET Core or it isn't right now? It is not, it is not going to be. Yeah, there is no plans to support Webforms in .NET Core. Oh, okay. Because I actually heard somewhere that um, WinForms is actually um, coming to, to .NET Core. Actually. Yeah, um, that is part of .NET 3.0. And I talked about that with Scott Hunter. So yeah. WinForms and WPF, they did bring those over recently with .NET Core 3. Yeah, but uh, web forms is not coming over. Oh, that's so interesting. I guess um, why they would. Um, I mean, when I heard about it, I was like, "Wow, wow, wind forms!" I haven't done a wind forms app in in so many years, kind of thing. Um, and I guess, but I guess there's there's probably they just looked at it and just gone. There's there's just tons of legacy apps, um, and it's just worth the investment to actually move wind forms over. But yeah, they're they're hoping that maybe some other um, group will pick it up and and do a port. But they when they looked at it, it was just uh, too much to. Uh, you know, tackle, I guess, for them. Yeah, sure. Because they just want to put all their their emphasis in making .NET Core and .NET 5 better. Mm. And they think they've, they've gotten over uh, as much as they need to get over right now. Mm. There is a library that I've mentioned on a couple of shows called .VVM. And that has a lot of replacements for web form type elements. And it can run full framework or core so if somebody doesn't want to go the Blazor route, they can look at .vvm. And there's a lot of just really, really similar controls like the data grids and grid views and buttons and dropdowns and things like that are almost just swap them out. And you can swap it out, get it working in .vvm. And then once you have everything done, 
you can then just switch over to core. Okay. And that was a project by the .NET Foundation. So that's a, a well, you know, supported platform or environment for um, .NET developers. Okay. I'll have to check it out. So, yep, I'm going to be checking out more of Blazor and then uh, more of um, VS Online. And hopefully I'm going to, I'm going to try to apply for that uh, private preview of the Visual Studio editor for VS Online and see what that's like. Yeah, I think, I think I'm definitely going to do that as well, actually. So. All right. So I, I think that covers just about everything that I got out of Ignite. Um, it was just, just an awesome thing to, to be at and get to meet all the different Microsoft people. You know, mm-hmm. they, had, they had sections for DevOps people. They had sections for Azure. They had sections for Office 365 and just tons and tons of sessions going on. So you had to use their app to just kind of figure out where you wanted to be throughout the day. Some of them were really short sessions, but some of them, you know, went on longer. Some would be 45 minutes to an hour and 15. So, and then of course they do put them all online. So if you miss something or you're there and you, you can't get to it, there's maybe two that you want to go at the same time. You can go to one and then catch the other one at a later time online watching the streaming episode. So there's also the um, the Ignite tours things now, isn't it? Um, so they're, they're actually bringing it around the world, but I, I imagine they wouldn't be as big as the one that you went to. But. Right, right. They, they mentioned that at, at Ignite too. So there is uh, Ignite the tour. So, mm. and they're going to Europe and Australia and all different parts, Asia, and I don't know, 20 or 30 different cities. So do look for that if you're not able to make Ignite in, in the U.S. Uh, it, like, it is smaller, but they're still going to cover a lot, of, a lot of great stuff. Sure. We've been recording Ruby Rogue since 2011, and we've talked to a lot of people who have had a really deep influence, not only on the programming community, but also on the Ruby community. And as we've talked to these people, it's become apparent to me that we talk a lot about the things that make them interesting that they've done, but we don't really get into how they got into programming or how they came up in their career, how they got to be the person who invented whatever library or, or technique that they came on the show to talk about. And so I put together a show where we actually highlight these things. We talk to them about how they got into programming. We talk to them about how they got into Ruby, maybe how they got into Rails. We get a little bit deep into what makes them tick and why they are the way they are. And then we talk about what they're working on. We talk about the things that make them well-known or make them interesting. And a lot of times, it's the stuff that goes beyond the code that really makes these people tick and makes them the kind of people that we want to hear about. And so I put together a show called My Ruby Story. You can find it at myrubystory.com. And it's where I interview these people and just get the stories of these people and how they came into programming. So if you want to hear inspirational stories or get ideas on how you can actually advance your career, then go check it out at myrubystory.com. I'm going to go ahead with picks and... The most important thing that I got at uh, Ignite was that announcement for Visual Studio Online. I really want to give that a shot and see if I can make that work where I can just keep on using the same environment between work and home and even when I travel because I can just get onto a browser, pick up where I left off at work and keep on going. And then if I need to you know, bring people in to help me out with my code, I can use LiveShare um, to do something like that. So I'll put the link to the 
sign up for Visio Studio online in the show notes. So people check it out. What do you got? Why? So this week, um, my pick is actually not programming related. It's actually a website called kiva.org. So it's essentially a micro lending, um, like a loan site. It's, it's kind of really, I don't know, I've never really um, done anything before, but essentially um, you basically, you, you, you give them like, I don't know, a small amount of money, like $50, um, and you decide on the site who you want to lend to. So there's people from for countries that just need a loan to, you know, grow some crops or something. Um, they've got a bit of description. And then you, you, you lend them the money and then they they slowly pay it back. Um, and I've, I think I've, I paid, I, I loaned, I lent like $25 a couple of years ago and it's been paid back to me like two or three times already. So for me, it's, it's kind of just like a really innovative way of just um, trying to, trying to help out. Um, so instead of just donating the money, you're actually just loaning the money out. And then once you get it back, you can, you can loan it out again and again. So there's obviously a chance to default because, um, you know, crops die and things like that. But um, for me, I've, I've done it twice now and I haven't had a, had a default. So it's good. Are they charging any interest on that? Is it low interest or no interest? Or how no, 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 no interest. Uh, it's no just, interest. It, you're, you're only lending out like, you know, like 20 or $30 or, or, or whatever. So um, there's not a lot of money. It's just, it's just a good way to kind of, I don't know, like it's good because you kind of get a little bit of background about what, what, what the person's um, trying trying to get the money for and things like that. So, Okay. All right. I'll check that yeah, out. I guess a bit of accountability, I guess, as well, because you, know, you are you're actually seeing how many of the loans um, get defaulted and things like that. So, oh, Okay. Awesome. So I think that covers it for today. I want to start letting people know if they want to reach out to me, they can find me on Twitter at Whopper underscore dev. That's W-O-P-R underscore D-E-V on Twitter. And if people want to reach out to you, how can they do uh, that? I'm probably through my LinkedIn. I'll, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes, I think. Okay. All right. So thanks, everybody. We'll see you on the next episode. See ya. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.